You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Okay, and we're off. So I would like to welcome uh, Sophia audience, and um, anyone not in the Sophia audience is also welcome. Um, JP, do you care to uh, introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. My name is J.P. Messina. I am currently assistant professor of philosophy at the University of New Orleans, uh, where I also serve as the assistant director of the, and this is a long title for a thing, but the Urban Entrepreneurship and Policy Institute. Um, that should I'll, serve as a sufficient introduction, I guess. I feel you deserve a, a long title. A lo- Oh, okay, good. <laughs> what, what are the deserve bases for long titles? Tedious careers. <laughs> no, you're just a, a wise and a valuable intellectual. And this is, and I will note for the audience that it actually appears that you're taller than I am, which is a very, very false impression. JP is about, comes up to about my hip in real life. <laughs> Highly misleading. As is the claim about your hip, I'm at least nipple level, I think. <laughs> This is a, no, I haven't. Well, not in that direction. Um, this is a continued series of David interviews his friends. So I had Carson on uh, last time. Um, and so we are also uh, friends from our Georgia days, uh, studied philosophy together and um, hung out and watched the room and stuff like that. And, but we're here today to talk about the issue of private censorship and what it is, uh, whether it exists, which is a controversial topic, and why we should give it sort of any weight in our political discussions. So my sort of idea was if we're going to talk about social censorship, we should work backwards and start with the basic idea of censorship and then work our way around to the social part and then sort of talk about what sort of things we should be thinking of. So um, one way of sort of starting a conversation like this is not all stoppage of speech is censorious, right? Um so if you had said to me, um, I plan on tomorrow going on uh, television and saying that the most patriotic thing a person could do would be to blow up Congress. And I said, JP, that's a terrible idea. Um, you should not go around uh, telling people to uh, commit treason. And I gave you a bunch of reasons for why I thought that, um, why I thought maybe you owed some fealty to the government or uh, why political violence is a bad development or possible uh, bad things that could result from your speech. And the end result of that was that you decided, you know what, I'm going to reconsider and I'm not going to say that what I've done is effectively stopped you from saying something, but that's the sort of speech that no one would consider censorious. 
But there are other times where there are things that we clearly want to call censorious that we want to object to. Um, famous examples would be um, we started talking about um, the United States government uh, during the sort of World War One and Depression era formally stopped people from issuing uh, socialist propaganda. Um, and I clearly want to say that that's censorious. That's something that we should not be in the business of doing uh, as a government or as a society. So what, how do we try to locate the difference between stoppage of speech, speech that's censorious and stoppage of speech that's non-censorious? How, how, how do you approach that question? Well, so you began in a much more plausible real world sort of mm -hmm. place than I was going to when I saw your outline for this thing. Mm -hmm. So you have the classic sort of million distinction between rational persuasion and censorship or moral censure. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'll just put my cards on the table, right? Like there was a time in my life when I was inclined to think, well, like censorship is just any time, say, the government stops you from speaking for some reason. Mm -hmm. That doesn't work for various reasons. So suppose that state-run schools or in courtrooms, and there are things that you can't say in those courtrooms, right? Mm -hmm. If you're the jury, you basically have to shut up until you're issuing your verdict. Mm -hmm. It's weird to think of that as censorship, even though it's something that the state's doing, even though there's a sort of sanction uh, attached to it. Um, and I think that's because it's a sort of time, manner, place restriction. Mm -hmm. So I think of things like that. Think, so so just, I'm, Oh, go ahead. Just to fill out time, manner, place is it being in the jury box. It's not the time or the place to be engaging in really any kind of speech. But if you started giving your political opinions from a jury box, it would be legitimate to stop uh, for the judge to order that juror to stop speaking because he's not really stop stopping the juror from issuing an opinion or engaging in political speech, but not doing it while this uh, while this uh, task still needs to be completed, the performance of a trial, right? So that's yeah, exactly. Limited in time and manner, but yes, okay, yes, exactly. The, and the the contrast case being where somebody tries to restrict certain speech wherever it's said at whatever time and whatever forum for its content. Mm -hmm. Um. So that's one thing that seems to be relevant for this kind of thing. Another thing seems to be the presence of some sort of sanction. So when, in your case, when you're just persuading me not to go on Leno or whatever, and or whatever, why am I issuing political <laughs> statements on Leno? I don't know. But um, Especially what, since he's not in the air anymore. <laughs> oh, well, I'm out of touch uh, here as elsewhere. <laughs> um, so, you know, it just seems to me that when you do that, you're really not, you're not trying to cow me into not giving the speech, right? Mm -hmm. You have in some sense, my interests in speaking at heart when you say mm -hmm. mm, you might not want to do that. Right. Um, and counterfactually, 
I think if I were to go on, what was it, CBS or whatever, or NBC, and mm-hmm. say the thing, uh, you probably wouldn't try to stop me. You'd be like, oh, there goes that fool. Now, C- CBS, NBC might try to stop me, and that's a different kind of matter. Mm-hmm. But if you wouldn't try to stop me or apply any real sanction or pressure, then it's hard to see that you're doing anything sensorial. Does that seem right to you? Yeah. Um, I, I thought the crucial thing you said there was about um, cowing someone as, as opposed to um, convincing them. So w- what does it mean to cow somebody out of speech um, as opposed to convince them not to speak? Um, which is something that's, I think, going to become increasingly important as we get deeper into this conversation. But um, I, I think the, the crucial thing which I've written about and tried to focus in on is I try to impose some cost on you. One way of inf- – so supposing you came up to me and said, I'm going to go on television and say that I think blowing up Congress is a good idea – there are different ways I can try to stop you from doing that. Um, you've presumably undergone some kind of rational deliberative process and you have already decided on some action and you've announced that action to me beforehand. Um, I, there, one way I can try to dissuade you is to, uh, get you to revise whatever rational deliberative process you went through to choose that as the action that you wanted to perform. And the other thing I can do is try to impose a cost on you so that that new information revises your, um, it it affects what you might want to, the outcome of your action might be and might make you rethink. Um, yeah, so you say, I'm not going to have this conversation with you, or I'm not going to be friends with you, or I'm going right. to slash your tires. Right. Or if you're significantly more powerful, I'm going to lock you up in a cell somewhere or something like right. that. If I'm take a, some of your money. Uh, yes. So I think that, that moves us to the kind of... Um, social and non-social censorship. So um, we've already kind of picked at, we we decided to have a conversation about social censorship, and I was thinking we probably shouldn't take for granted what non-social censorship is. Uh, Because it's it's sort of the kind of censorship that we all think we already understand. Right. And that can be a bit dangerous, but paradigmatically, um, I mean, what seems to be the paradigmatic example of censorship, the sort of thing we all agree would be censorship, um, is the state through an official channel um, declaring uh, that some speech is... Um, not permissible speech of a given content uh, in America that would be uh, usually Congress passes a law, which it has many times restricting uh, speech, you know, going all the way back to the Alien and Sedition Acts, but also uh, especially in World War I, um, 
uh, Jeffrey Stone is the leading expert on this. He, they passed extremely restrictive laws on what people were allowed to say. Uh, people were officially not allowed to say anything that disparaged the government or the president. Um, yeah, sort of what you have going on in China right now, where executives in the government have released a memo basically saying just that anything threatening the government is not free speech and yeah. can, you know, come under our heavy thumb. Yeah, well, in more dictatorial governments, it doesn't have to be uh, a legislative body or a court like what happened in America. It could be uh, an official proclamation um, uh, by whoever's the executive. Um, I was kind of puzzling about some things, which it's not clear whether to consider them official sort of state-sanctioned censorship. What about when, um, like, Republican um, members of a state legislature go on the news, like the local news in uh, Wisconsin, say, and rant about what this or that college professor is uh, teaching, uh, teaching some, complaining about some poor gender studies professor and how they're indoctrinating, you know, corrupting the youth of Athens, um, and that they're, uh, you know, indoctrinating your kids and blah, blah, blah. This happens a lot. Um, is that a state action? If it's, um, if it's, uh, undertaken by someone who's actively serving in a role in the government? You know, that's, that's a difficult question. It certainly gets us away from the paradigm cases where you've got sort of state-sponsored book burnings and sort of the central news agency in North Korea, which is where, you know, all North Koreans get their news from or this, this sort of system of censorship in China. But what the question raises is sort of the distinction between an official acting in his or her official capacity and acting in a private capacity or something that's not quite official. So when the Republican Senator says this about the gender studies professor, is that person acting from his or her office or are they debating, you know, some pundit on, you know, the, value of the university education or, or whatever. And I think that the, the answer to that question could vary. I mean, certainly if they're acting in their official capacity in the United States, they're doing something that's going to be illegal and the professor will have standing to sue provided they're, well, you know, they're not making a law yet, but if they were to go on and mobilize to make a law against such things, then they, they'd be doing something illegal. Um, of course, certainly... They don't get always always get held responsible for doing things that are illegal. That's right. Um, so that's that's a separate kind of question. But then, yeah, I mean, even if they're not acting in their official capacity, they certainly have a platform that's a great deal higher than the platform that you or I have, say. Um, and what they say can exert a kind of chilling effect on speech. Um, and insofar as lots and lots of senators 
are behaving in this way and lots and lots of officials in a government are saying these kinds of things. I'm ecumenical enough about what censorship in general is to say that that would be a sort of censorial regime, even if they don't actually punish anyone and it's just sort of almost a, a convention develops where the state is really hostile to certain kinds of speech. I'm happy to call that censorship. But, you know, the, the boundaries of this notion are fuzzy because, you know, we started with the clear cases. The clearest case of stoppage of speech, which isn't censorship, is when you get your tonsils out, right? <laughs> the doctor is not acting as a censor. Borderline cases are when you're persuading me. So suppose you're, like, much smarter than I am and much more eloquent. Mm-hmm. We might not even have to suppose that. It's just true. <laughs> And so when you try to persuade me of something, I'm just going to believe what you say and change my course of action. Right. When you're in that capacity uh, and you know that you're in that capacity with respect to me or in that position with, with respect to me, I'm happy to say that there's something like sensorial happening there. If you know that the effect of your offering any reason at all is that I'm just going to like turn around and revert course then it seems like there's something akin to censorship going on. Mm-hmm. Um, other sort of fuzzy cases, though, I admit that that's a kind of fuzzy case. Other sort of fuzzy cases are like exercises of editorial authority, right, mm-hmm. where you're the head of the Washington Post, mm-hmm. and I want to write an op-ed, and it's about how we should blow up Congress to keep mm-hmm. with your example. Mm-hmm. And you say, we're not going to have any of that at WAPO. Mm-hmm. Is that a kind of censorship? I'm happy to say that it is, I think. Yeah, I, I um, agree. I'm also happy to say that censorship, some people, I think, I think there are two classes of people, right? Some people say all censorship is wrong. And yeah. some people say all censorship is done by the state. Yeah. And I'm happy to reject both of those things, Right. Yeah. Some censorship is done by private parties. Some censorship is permissible. If you're the editor of the Washington Post, you've got a scarce number of pages. You can't print everything. Well, I, I would say um, not even uh, permissible, but obligatory. I mean, I, I, I would actively find it irresponsible if um, the Washington Post started publishing uh Bunch of Messina op-eds. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, no, not Messina op-eds would be good, but if any op-eds arguing that we should blow up Congress or something, um, yeah, I would say I would definitely get on Twitter and say that that was a terrible idea. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I do think, I don't think censorship has an inherent negative moral valence. Uh, meaning censorship, which is a basically a more precise way of saying censorship is not always wrong. Right. Um, in fact, censorship can be justified and right. But I mean, steering back, I, my question was less about whether or not certain speech counts as censorious. My sort of example of the state state senator. I think I started with state representative, and you promoted him. But um, oh, sorry. No, that's, I shouldn't do that. <laughs> I shouldn't just be promoting. Yeah, I mean, I, he was uh, 
we've only heard about bad behavior so far, but um, we'll keep the promotion. So state senator somewhere. Um, my question wasn't so much whether it's censorious, because I think we both agree it is, but whether it's a sort of official state censorship or whether it's a more social kind of censorship. Um, and I, my, my thought on that would be that it seems that if somebody's in office, that's relevant and it adds a dimension to how we consider their speech that would not otherwise be there. So uh, can I ask if, so to get to zoom in on this question a little bit more, is it, uh, do you want to clarify the case by specifying whether this person is say acting out of their office and just issuing their private opinion on a matter that they hope will be taken seriously. Cause I think that's important for determining whether we have a case of something approaching, maybe it's a fuzzy case, but something approaching state censorship uh, or, or something that's more private. So suppose somebody, this person said it on a radio show. Yeah. Um, what would you say then? Is it more? So I'm wondering, I mean, my, I guess my, my sense is that there's nothing terribly special about politicians when they're saying things. What's special is, is, um, power asymmetry. So I mentioned this, the height of the platform that somebody has. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm inclined to think that that might not be, that might not be a, a terribly problematic instance of state censorship insofar as the, the Senator is, um, not acting in an official capacity and insofar as they're acting in a context in which we know that there are sort of legal protections against the sort of state taking up any law that would back up the president's or the senator. Now I'm really promoting him. <laughs> the senator's words uh, against this professor. Mm-hmm. And then I think what you have is just an especially powerful person who is saying something which might chill speech. And if there's a sufficient amount of that, whether they're executives, CEOs, celebrities, or whatever else, if there are a sufficient number of people doing that kind of thing, then I think that can, that can exert such a negative influence on the atmosphere of expression that though no government violates, say, the First Amendment ever, you might want to say that's a, that's a sort of censorious regime. Yeah. I'm just thinking about the difference between, um, so suppose a state um, put a bill together that was um, designed to stop a certain kind of speech and they all got together and they passed it through a state legislature. Um that's one kind of way of censoring speech. Right. But sort of um, 
senators going on local radio and television and stuff and ranting about things and trying to attack people's uh, reputations if they say things they don't like, that's also a kind of um, suppress attempt to suppress speech. So the attended effect is the same in both cases, but sort of the mechanism of enforcement or the way that the, the actors hope to bring about that stoppage of speech is different in the two cases. And um, that's, I think, sort of where we get into um, why we need a concept of social censorship. Um, it's, we need it because there's a lot of uh, the kind of effects to stop a lot of the kinds of modern attempts to um, stop speech that deserve our attention have this kind of mechanism of enforcement. It's not uh, done through an official state channel with uh, sort of using the heavy hand of the state. It's in this other kind of more nebulous kind of category. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And so that, I mean, and maybe I wasn't clear. I certainly wasn't clear. Um, but I mean, I think that the reason that I was pressing you to consider whether um, this would be different if it were, say, like a celebrity or a group of celebrities doing it was to get at this original question of, is this state censorship when right. the senator does it? And my intuition on the case is that if we live in a world where it's basically impossible for Congress to enact restrictions on speech and to censor, you know, going beyond the uh, issue of defining unprotected speech, then no, it's not. It's just a relatively powerful person doing something which is going to make it harder to express ideas and doing so by imposing the kinds of costs, right, that you, that you, that you mentioned earlier, right? So now you have to worry that so-and-so will, you know, call you out on, I don't know, MSNBC or whatever talk radio show you listen to. Mm -hmm. I'm not really into the talk radio game, so I don't even think I could name anything other than NPR. Um, but so, you, you know, they're going to call you out and then your students are going to retaliate possibly and so on. But then it looks a lot more like sort of social or private censorship than at least a paradigm case of state censorship. Right. Okay. I think we're pretty close together on that. Um, so then there's this question of, we suppose we understand how the mechanism, what censorship is when there is this sort of state mechanism behind it um, to use sort of force and coercion and the official um, law enforcement of uh, state power to um, to enforce censorship. But what is the mechanism involved in this other kind of case, which we're calling social censorship? And, yeah, well, you want to take it from there? Well, yeah, I mean, unless you were going to offer your own thoughts. I mean, I, I, I'm really ecumenical. I'm inclined to be a pluralist about the kinds of costs. So a private employer can censor his employees or her employees by saying, if you speak out against 
you know, our being a union shop or write an op-ed uh, denouncing union shops, you'll be released. Um, or, you know, TV networks and broadcast companies can censor by saying you just can't speak on the following kinds of topics. There was a case, uh, CBS censored an episode of The Good Fight. Do you know, I don't know the show very well. Mm, Not no. a full episode, but an eight minute segment of this show was a musical short, um, sort of critical of the Chinese, uh, sort of ironic case was critical mm. of the Chinese censorship regime. And so CBS, you saw a black box when you were watching this. Oh. CBS has censored this content and went on <laughs> for eight seconds. And then the, the good fight, uh, you know, um, resumed, uh, or by just, you know, kicking you off the air, you know, you get sort of stereotypical cane comes out, pulling the person off the stage, <laughs> right? Um, cr- crowds can censor by publicizing the things that you've said and making you vulnerable to being dismissed by virtue of like affecting the company's bottom line. Social media companies can censor by deplatforming. Groups of friends can censor one another by dissociating or threatening to dissociate from somebody because they have a bad sense of humor or inclined toward making certain jokes uh, and so on. So I just think that there are lots of costs that aren't state costs. They have nothing to do with prisons or fines mm-hmm. that we as sort of private actors can impose on one another to try to control what is said. Mm-hmm. And in a way that's radically different from when you come up to me and, and give me lots of deductively valid arguments and sound mm-hmm. too for why I can't go on, you know, NBC and talk about blowing up the Congress. Right. Okay. So we sort of agreed that uh, a good working definition of what is censorious is it's those attempts to stop speech, which, um, operate by imposing a cost on the potential speaker um, when that speaker speaks in ways that the person imposing the cost deems undesirable. Um, and obviously the state's in a good position to do that. It can find people, it can imprison people, it can, um, you know, Weber, as I always said, uh, I keep bringing this up, but that, the state was the actor that tries to monopolize the exercise of violence. So the state can come and um, beat people up, um, which happens in certainly in authoritarian countries um, happens too often in this country. Um, but there are other ways of imposing costs. And it seemed to me on your little tear there of giving us different examples of ways that uh, non-state actors can impose costs on people, you were uh, pretty overwhelmingly concerned with economic costs. So um, my employer has power over me in that I rely on them, at least in the short term for uh, – for money, and if they take that money away or if they um, stop employing me, that's going to be a pretty major disruption to my life. Um, so that imposes a cost on me. 
that gives a pretty strong, uh, pretty strong capacity to influence my behavior. Um, and some of the examples were more subtle. If I'm a journalist working for uh, some big news organization, Washington Post or NBC, and uh, somebody kills my story, it's not just that, you know, I'm listening to my editor because they um, they have power over me and I'm worried about them firing me or the authority that they have over me. We're also probably, hopefully, engaged in this common project, and I see them as a center of guidance and um, a legitimate authority and someone whose respect I want to earn. So they can they have that kind of power, more legitimate power over me that, that influences um, the way I speak and what I say or do. Um, but there are kinds of what it seems to me most salient, uh, the conversation about social censorship that we most need to have, I think, is not about economic costs so much, um, although that's a valuable conversation to have but about these sort of reputational costs and um, the manner in which people speak and whether some kinds of speech are really constitute civic virtue or whether they constitute a sort of civic vice, which uh, makes it harder for us to have the kind of um, conversations we need to have to be a functioning democracy. Um, I just said a lot, so I don't know if you have uh, something to throw in there, because I have another tear in me, but go ahead. Good. Well, I'll let you get to that. Just, I mean, I don't think that I focused, I mean, I'm, I, I listed tons of different things like deplatforming mm-hmm. and sort of mm-hmm. dissociation with friend groups, or you're not going to, you know, so loss of social standing, I think is super important. Um, the reason that I'm so caught up on these employer cases is that I've got this this book project where I'm trying to articulate the sort of ethical and political principles that should guide uh, private censorship writ large. Mm-hmm. And that forces me to talk about all of these different cases. Um, what got me originally interested was some of these cases involving a loss of social standing, um, a loss of reputation. Um, so I'll just say that in way of defense of my, my sort of broad, broad umbrella there, but. No, fair enough. Um, yeah, but I sort of want to. <clears throat> I, I think what gets really hard about this conversation is that there are a lot of people who want to pretend that reputation and um, social standing don't matter to them in a way that's uh, would have seemed, I think, profoundly strange to almost anyone in the 18th century. Um, you know, when you, I, I think about how we must appear, how we would appear to someone like David Hume or Boswell or um, 
Washington or Jefferson, all of whom were sort of nakedly, openly obsessed with their reputations and with um, the image that they had to the public and um, and all of whom said that they did basically everything they did in their lives in order to get a better reputation and in some cases some kind of immortality. Um, they were all extremely concerned about anyone saying something bad or scurrilous about them. And everyone understood that that would be damaging to a person. Um, I mean, David Hume made that great observation that we, we uh, naturally admire rich people. Um, because we connect sort of the person to the wealth and um, we sort of, uh, it's a sort of natural uh, inference that the mind makes of um, thinking that they would merit whatever fortune they have. And um, I, it, it, on the one hand, we have conservatives who are saying, well, I'm not a snowflake. I don't care what people say about me. It's just water off a duck's back. And um, then there are uh, sort of liberals who um, – also want to say, you know, uh, freedom from speech doesn't mean freedom from consequences and you don't have a right to complain about other people um, attacking your character. And everybody's um, sort of open to mocking everybody else's hypocrisy, but nobody seems willing to admit that we all care about reputations. Reputation is an important part of social life and being um, attacked and sort of rejected, being, uh, to use a sort of Kantian Hegelian word, being not recognized, um, being uh, shunned as immoral is a seriously painful uh, circumstance for the human animal. Um, so I, I mean, it, so that's a sort of difficulty I'm having where, um, a lot of people want to pretend reputation doesn't matter or that this kind of social, um, uh, interconnectedness is not important in the way it seems to me it is, um, and that sort of makes a whole bunch of censorious behavior kind of invisible. Because if you don't consider reputation and the importance of sort of social recognition, then there's nothing, you don't see that important thing that you have to lose uh, at the hands of social censors. So, uh, uh, how does this come across? Uh, Variously. Um, there's a lot, I think there's a lot there. I mean, I think, um, you brought up the issue of 
hypocrisy in these kinds of discussions. And I think that that's something, uh, you know, that's salient to those of us who have mostly stayed on the sidelines of the culture wars is that mm-hmm. when somebody starts complaining about some form of private censorship to which they've been subject, you have one of two responses, right? Mm-hmm. If the person is someone that the responder is sympathetic with politically, the alarm bells get raised. You start talking about um, extension of the First Amendment to protect First Amendment freedoms when they're infringed by private parties. Um, the second response is the one that you attributed, I think, to liberals, but which also, I think, is offered by conservative folks when it's a liberal person who's under the gun, which is to say, look, like these are just private parties exercising their rights. There's nothing morally interesting to say here at all. Mm-hmm. Um, my own inclination is to think that both of those responses, so two, two reactions to, to the family responses. First, it's just depressing how often which response you give depends on the case at hand and how little people seem to care about consistency in these Mm -hmm. domains. But the second is just to say that both of these responses seem to be missing something hugely important. Um, The first folks who want to raise the alarm bells seem to be missing at least that there is a tension here insofar as very often these kinds of reputational smear campaigns Mm-hmm. are carried out by means of of speech, right? And so the idea of extending the First Amendment to res- restrict these kinds of interferences with somebody's reputation uh, is, is sort of a non-starter, right? You have rights to freedom of speech and assembly, which let me leave you and say presumably nasty things about you as long as they're not libelous, Um and so it doesn't seem right to say that these kinds of interference with or these kinds of costs or uh, they rise to the same level as, say, like the state's sensorial activity. But it also doesn't seem right to say that there's just nothing important going on here, right? Mm-hmm. And this is what I think the second response misses is like it's way too cavalier to look at these kinds of cases and the psychological, social, and yeah, economic harm that mm-hmm. these these kinds of campaigns have wrought on people, uh, often for things that they said years in the past and mm-hmm. often for positions which they held but no longer hold and, and so on. It just seems like these are severe, these are significant costs to be imposing on people. And we need to think hard uh, individually, I think, but also sort of collectively in terms of the kinds of norms we want to promote about when somebody is rightly subject to those norms. Because as I've said before, I mean, somebody can be rightly subject to um, censorship. All You know, this happens, I think, all the time. Uh, even when the consequences are very nasty, even when the per- person who's censored is uh, sort of left with, with rags at the end. But like, we have to be careful because there's a lot at stake. Mm-hmm. 
So those are some of my various reactions to the, to yeah. the second tear, as you called it. <laughs> so being careful, um, what does uh, being careful mean? Um, so I, I think we're both uh, in agreement that sometimes um, suppression of speech by uh, imposing costs, e.g. censorship, is justified. And sometimes um, specifically just uh, suppressing speech by justifying or by imposing costs uh, by means of attacking someone's reputation or um, sort of hitting them in their, manipulating their social instincts that makes them want to be recognized by other social animals uh, can be justified as well. Um, But uh, I, I would say that a lot of what we are doing um, is not justified. So this sort of question of when are things justified and when they aren't, um, I think most mostly comes down to a question of what do we want our social conversations to accomplish? And... Um, what do we want the end result of those conversations to be? And as you said, we build norms um, around how we have conversations and really we should um, tailor the norms that we kind of construct based upon what we take the ends of these conversations to be. Um, And right now I see a lot of reason to think we're doing that pretty badly. Um, yeah. So uh, one kind of thing that I, well, okay. I just said several things. So are you broadly in sympathy for, with the idea that um, the way we construct norms around the way we have conversations should be um, justified in view of the sort of, what do we expect the ends of these kinds of processes to be? So, um, yeah, the way you put this was, what do we want our sort of social conversations to accomplish? Yeah. Um, I think that there are people and groups of people who are thinking in that way, what do we want our social conversations to accomplish? who are nevertheless like damaging people's reputations in bad and unjustifiable ways. And so let me give you two examples of this. Um, One example is in a phenomenon that uh, the philosophers uh, Brandon Warmke and Justin Tosi have written a book recently about uh, immoral grandstanding. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, though, 
how often this reaches the level of conscious thought, perhaps not very. Sometimes what we're trying to do when we engage in social conversations about various things is win a kind of social capital for us. We're really trying to promote our virtue in the eyes of the public. And we can achieve this by denouncing other people and by piling on and by starting sort of smear campaigns Mm -hmm. that make us look good, I suppose, in the lot, in the eyes of some folks, while at the same time damaging other people's reputations and without doing anything that's really, really good. Mm-hmm. So that's one kind of case where it might, you might imagine a kind of intentional grandstanding where like you're cynical enough to say, yeah, like what I want this social conversation to accomplish, I want it to make me look good. Mm-hmm. So that's one way in which I don't think it's enough to just ask that question. Another way in which I don't think it's enough to just ask that question, and I know you have responses, but the second way in which I don't think it's enough to ask that kind of question, because this is, I was sort of tempted by this framing myself and I got to think about, was that I think that there are some people who think that conversation and rhetoric in general, discourse in general is a tool. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you're right. They'll say, like, we need to think about what we want our social conversations to accomplish. And what I want our social conversation to accomplish is to, um, be maximally punitive toward people who hold views that aren't good views and not for retributive reasons, but because I think that's the best way of realizing the good society. And so what I think that these two kinds of cases bring up, at least for me, is that we need to have a conversation not just about what we want to accomplish, but about what we ought to want to Mm -hmm. accomplish. Um, Oh, yes. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I I agree with that very much. Um, Yeah, that's what I wanted to sort of get into by having a conversation about sort of the ends of... uh, of these conversations that we have. I think too few people think about why do we have newspapers? Um, Why do we have op-eds? The Um, comic sections. Oh, the (laughs) op-eds don't have a comic section, but the newspapers do. Do they still? I guess. You know what? I don't even remember the last time I opened one. Yeah, I can't remember touching a physical magazine or newspaper. I know they still have the crosswords. Okay. So the crossword section. All right. So, but I mean, there's this one sort of thing that I hear people say occasionally, especially from journalists, which is um, the anti take um, kind of take, uh, which is people say, you know, it's better to have one reporter sort of out discovering new facts and reporting on things than 10 different people just publishing their takes on things. Um, Which is sort of half right. I mean, there's legitimate criticisms about the media ecosystem and how it's easy to publish sort of fairly superficial opinions on things um, cheaply and quickly. Uh, and sort of rush them out while some controversy's still hot. And 
you know, that's shallow and not very good. But I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that even if we had sort of the best, some sort of ideal fact discovering investigative journalism, we'd still need op-ed pages um, because we would have to have, that's where we have our moral and political discussions which are always underdetermined by the facts. So even in, if we were in full possession of the facts, we'd have to have a public discussion about how to interpret and how to evaluate those facts and how we act in light of those facts. And we need that kind of um, give and take and expressing of uh, exchange of opinion that's uh, fundamental to a democratic society and it can't, nothing can take its place, right? There's no amount of facts that you can discover that will render um, sort of political matters uncontroversial. There will always be uh, values to be negotiated um, and courses of actions will have to be discussed. Uh so, so do the norms that we have serve those kinds of functions? Um, and, you know, you said that a private uh, person um, can cynically say, you know, I want to win reputation for myself and I'm happy to uh, burn down other people's reputations to do it. Um, that's true, but it seems that um, that person is still, uh, to use a Kantian phrase, willing themselves the exception. Um, they they don't want to live in the world that they are creating, Right. Um, they want to attack somebody else's reputation and um, not be not have their own reputation attacked in return, right? But what the try to con- conversation I try to have with those kinds of people is to say, you know, ultimately you're self defeating. Um, you're you're creating an environment in which. Um, you're always going to be at risk of somebody else attacking your reputation in the way you attack the reputation of others and generally creating an environment of sort of fear and isolation in which um, people exactly don't get the kind of recognition that they so crave because they're always in this sort of anxious, uncertain state of um, staving off potential attacks um, and it's exactly because of the sort of asocial character of this, where my standing is based upon um, devouring somebody else's standing so that I have to harm somebody to gain benefit for myself. Um, so uh, you see the com- you see where I'm starting to come in here with the the ends of the conversation where I don't think that those um, I think I have something to say to that person the grandstander about how their ends are not being served by the kinds of conversations 
that we're having now. So that's that's excellent stuff. Um, I mean, so you, you go Kantian, which <laughs> is a move that I like uh, in certain respects, having done a bachelor's thesis, master's thesis, and PhD on the guy. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I think is not compelling to people about the Kantian line against free writing, right? Mm-hmm. This sort of idea that, like, if other people in a sufficient number of them were to act as you are, you wouldn't want to be in that world. That's a sort of sketch, um, or there would be some sort of contradiction, uh, that wouldn't make that world even possible, or you wouldn't be able to achieve your end mm-hmm. in that world. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, it doesn't take away the incentive to free ride. Um, like it's true. I think that there's something unfortunate, maybe even inconsistent on the agential level in having those kinds of free riding goals. But nevertheless, I think, you know, people aren't perfect Kantian agents. They think, yeah, you're right. If I weren't socially powerful, if my group wasn't sufficiently in charge of how the rules of discourse get set, uh, then I'd be in trouble, right? Because I would be subject to this kind of treatment as well. And yes, I can admit that I wouldn't want that sort of thing for myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, The difficulty is that they can just, it seems to me, take the risk. And Mm -hmm. there are just people, I think, who are willing to take the risks. There are some sufficiently weighty ends that we can pursue. Now, maybe the self-promotion end isn't the kind of thing that is going to motivate people to take that kind of risk, but certainly the sort of promotion of justice kind of end can Mm -hmm. get people valorized to think that morally speaking, this sort of risk is worth taking. So yes, I may be providing a certain kind of cover for other people to do this in pursuit of their deeply held convictions, but I'm going to take the bet and champion the vulnerable in this case. Um, there, there was another strain of your comment that moved in a different, less Kantian direction, Hmm. which was about the importance of democratic deliberative norms and sort of the role of op-eds, right? Hmm. Where you said, you know, even if we could have all the facts, we would still want a kind of public discourse about things because we're undecided you said the facts could never the empirical facts could never settle the moral matter and what approach we could take to sort of public policy questions or things like that and that's a view with which i'm i'm basically sympathetic um and there i think the challenge is somewhat different right i mean i think what you're saying is basically that we need to be humble about what we know and we need to be, and we should be optimistic about what we can learn from others' reflections in these regards. So I've learned from reading your pieces. Uh, I'll continue to do so, I'm sure. I don't believe that sitting in my house alone with the facts, I would be able to produce all of the insights that you, uh, that you, uh, bring to the fore. Um, so like, but, you know, my priors are also that epistemic humility is important, that I don't know very much, that the more I seem mm-hmm. to learn about the world, mm-hmm. the more it confuses me and bewilders me and the less certain I am of what to do. But I think there's a challenge in that there's not a whole bunch of me's running around, right? Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people who think that at least on certain questions, they have the right view. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it was before we actually started recording here, but we were talking about the great Herbert Marcuse. Mm-hmm. The great. Okay. Well, he, you know, he is, uh, great in a certain respect. I mean, I think he is a, an, an important intellectual, um, and I think there's an important way in which what he says in the repressive tolerance essay uh, is something that a lot of people think, even if they're not willing to say it. And what he says there is basically that what you need is for the intellectual elite to form views on what is to be done and then to take whatever means necessary to realize those kinds of things. Because the alternative is to usher in a regime in which you're respecting all voices equally, some of which are perniciously more powerful than others, and perpetuating in a way that you might not intend an unjust status quo in which some people are subordinated. And so when you're dealing with people who have that, now they're not going to say it probably. So I think Marcuse was, was clear eyed enough to say, yeah, if you don't support things like the very new new deal policies then like you can be subject to repression. Mm-hmm. I don't think many people would draw the line just there, but there are certainly people who will say like, yeah, democratic deliberation is great. Epistemic humility is great for those issues on which we're not settled. But when we have, you know, good reason, right? Like be, an issue is being settled is a normative matter for these people. It's not a sociological one. Mm-hmm. And so they, so they say, well, we've got really good reasons for thinking that this sort of thing like is settled. Mm-hmm. We can be punitive. We can subject people to social sanctions to get them to fall in line. And, and in doing so, we'll be advancing the ends of justice. And I think that's a different sort of animal. The solution to that sort of animal, I don't really know. I, I hope that people will realize uh, enough to know by now, but it seems it's just not true that like most of the time when we're incredibly confident that certain things are settled, we're, we're uh, shown to be mistaken in some respect or other. Okay. So um, that was a lot. Talk that about was a lot. lot, but good. Um, so I want to take up your, your first point first about um my kind of Kantian willing yourself the exception arguments and um, will, you know, if I I can make an argument that people are um, creating a world that they don't necessarily want to live in themselves with their, the sort of behavior they're engaging in the social dynamics they're creating, but maybe they'll say, I don't care. I'll take the risk. Um, and I think one thing you said is um, it doesn't – that kind of argument doesn't take away the incentive for willing yourself the exception. Yeah, and if I might just say a little – just a brief word more about that. It's like you might say to the person whose cattle are grazing in the commons, <laughs> if you let your cattle graze excessively in the commons, okay, there well, will be no common. Spell out your illusions here. The, right. So the idea is just that there's there are collective action problems, right? And in some abstract way, you can view your behavior in perpetuating them as wrong. No, hang on. But you, no, but no, you no. lose out thereby. I, I, no, no. Actually, do the thing. The 
So in the 16th century, a lot of people had sheep or cows or something in England. And for a long time, there had been these common areas, which were you could all take your animals to graze. And um, so then everyone benefits from these common areas. Um, And uh, we all benefit sort of equally or in proportion to how many animals we have. Um, and But it's always possible for one person to try to not take care of the commons and be the person who gets their animals to graze but doesn't put the work into maintaining the common areas. That's and right. Yeah. what happened in the 16th century is a lot of people started enclosing these areas. Yeah. Thomas More called sheep beating up men. Um, so the point is we all have – we we would all prefer the world in which we all um, work to keep to maintain the commons, the common areas that we all benefit from. But we might all most prefer to be the one person who doesn't maintain the commons but still benefits from them, which we call free riding, uh, and which Kant would call willing yourself the exception. We want everyone else to follow the rule, take care of the commons, but we want to be the exception to the rule. That's exactly right. So that's the kind of problem we're dealing with. Okay, taking it from there. Um, oh, I was just going to say, I mean, you know, recognizing the Kantian thing, which is that you're willing yourself the exception, doesn't take away the incentive. And I mean, I think, so for anyone who's watching this that might not sort of get traction with the farming example, if you've ever shared a refrigerator with colleagues, right, right. like right. that thing is going to be a mess. Uh, and it's going to be a mess because people do things that they wouldn't do in their own refrigerator, like leave things uncovered to be knocked over. And they don't do things which they would do in their own refrigerator, like clean it up because, mm-hmm. you know, if they clean it up, someone else is going to leave something uncovered. So anyway, you know, so that that's the sort of worry is just that there's an incentive problem for people. And insofar as people think that they can gain most by flouting the rule, um, they might re- well recognize that there's something problematic there, but until you take away the sort of incentive, then uh, you have a problem. Right. Um, yes. So, and the Kantian moral argument, as you say, doesn't take away that incentive, but here's the thing. It's not supposed to um, because for Kant, if it did, it would no longer be a moral argument, which is one of the things he really hammers on in contrasting himself with Hume is moral reasoning is not prudential reasoning. Um, It's, it's a very attractive kind of uh, way of thinking about morality to think um, we're moral in order to be happy. Um, That, that you can justify living an upright life because you will be rewarded in some way. And Hume more or less argues this way. I'll have to be a bit unfair to Hume uh, speaking quickly here, but it's always Kant- best to be unfair to Hume. If you have to choose. <laughs> yeah. It always feels he like- does a good enough job defending himself. He's fine. That's true enough. Yeah. Pick up the inquiries. Um, but Kant thinks that when we're talking about 
morality, we're thinking about a radically different kind of reasoning. It's a non-prudential kind of reasoning. Um, we're not moral in order to earn something good for ourselves. That's, if we were thinking that way, we wouldn't be thinking morally. Um, and he, he brings this home with an example, which I th- still think is pretty devastating to Hume, um, which is imagine someone, and this goes back to Plato and the Ring of Invisibility, Glaucon. Gyges. Uh, uh, yes. He, he's, um, you know, Kant just says, imagine someone who is morally upright and keeps their promises and um, is generous and, um, you know, keeps their civic obligations until that person knows that no one's watching. And then they just behave totally scurrilously and do whatever is in their own private advantage. We wouldn't call that person a moral person. No, certainly not. And and this is why I think that the moral grandstanding case is easier for you to handle than the case where people think that they're promoting not their own ends, but actually the ends of the vulnerable. Well, well, but here's the thing. And there's the same sort of, yeah. The moral grandstander, I... I don't think the moral grandstanders who exist will, would ever say to me or to themselves, I know there's a risk from what I'm doing uh, that somebody will attack my reputation, but cynically, I think I can get away with it. I'm going to take the risk. Um, that's not the way they, they defend themselves. That's not the way I think they see themselves. Um they want to, they think that their kinds of speaking, that their kinds of grandstanding and their kinds of attacking people's reputations can eventually produce a kind of world in which sort of everyone is happy and well served, unless they're very bad people, in which case, you know, in that world, those very bad people are punished, but that's okay because they're very bad people. People receive happiness in proportion to their virtue, right? Which is Kant's <laughs> idea of utopia. The highest good. The highest good. Um, and since they think that, we can have a kind of argument with them. Um, the Kantian style argument and try to argue about whether the means they're um, pursuing actually could bring about that kind of world. And it seems to me, so that's great. This, this is fantastic. So it seems to me that um, they're just, hmm? so, so, so there's a different, so the, the sort of categorical imperative test that gets you this sort of contradiction of will and conception, and this is not a world that you can will means that like there's no there's no guarantee mm-hmm. right that you could live in this kind of world in the conception case then maybe maybe there is but i think that the gamble that folks are willing to make is that just empirically mm-hmm. right it's an empirical question what kind of world i'm going to realize because i'm not going to realize the world where everyone acts on my maximum right that's kind mm-hmm. of an idea like you're never going to get to that kind of situation. The world that you're going to realize is a world that upholds the rights of the vulnerable better or worse. 
Mm-hmm. And there might be a risk. I might. So what I think that the argument that you're giving shows is that I'll always risk that I'll lose power and some very, very bad people will gain it and subject me to the same kinds of sanctions that I've subjected other folks to. Mm-hmm. But like, if I want to do the moral calculation and I try to assign probabilities to the likelihood that that's going to obtain, I might just depending on facts about what discourse does to people say, okay, risk worth paying. I risk that. It's true that I risk that, but in not doing the sort of thing that I'm doing, I risk leaving us roughly where we are, which is a place that's unacceptable in view of the kinds of moral things that I care about. And I think that's really the difficulty with these kinds of arguments is that like they don't take away the possibility of doing that kind of moral calculation. Yeah. Well, uh, I could pick it that farther, but another thing I wanted to say was, um, which was kind of to your latter point, um, one reason that we don't want to just try to, okay, so uh, you, you, you put it to me that a lot of people take uh, certain matters to be settled and then they don't want to return to debates on those issues. And I, I agree with you. That's what I hear talking to people as well. People give um, those kinds of justifications. Like um, the race science thing has been a big one. Yeah. Um, or are we going to relitigate the existence of the Holocaust right. or something like okay. that? Right. Like, yeah, I mean, well, a better example than Holocaust denial, I think, is evolution denialism, which is sure. uh, um, certainly more prevalent, right? Yeah, it's um, well, exactly the point is I think we can fairly pretty well ignore Holocaust denialism in the United States because only a fairly small number of people engage in it. So, um, Michael Kramer, or what's his name? Michael Shermer, a uh, different person, uh, wrote, wrote a whole book uh, arguing, you know, sort of debunking Holocaust denialism. Um, but generally, that's not an effort we need to go to very often because there are only... I mean, I don't want to say that I'm not at all worried about Holocaust deniers because... They tend to get up to some nastiness, but I'm not all that worried. In the grand scheme of things, they're not that important. So evolution denialism is pretty much equally empirically off the wall. I mean, um, the evolutionary descent, uh, descent from common ancestor is sort of equally as empirically solid as the fact that the Holocaust is an empirical reality, historical event that actually took place. But it just so happens that almost half of our country doesn't believe it. So as far as I can tell, we have no choice but to debate and relitigate what should be a settled empirical matter simply because people don't accept it. And that's what I want to get down to is the reason we can't just say, well, that's settled and um, 
uh, we're not going to engage in debates on this topic is because then all I can do is coerce consent from people. I can get people to pay lip service to something. I can get them people to sort of shake their heads when I talk about it, but I can't get them to actually believe it. And the difference between being willing to assent to something in public and actually believing it um, is uh, a re- uh, something that makes a big political difference in the way we operate as a society. We, we shouldn't just want to get people to say they believe something in public. We have a vested interest in getting them to actually know and understand and have conviction about it. And this gets especially true with moral truths. Um, I think we've gotten really bad as a society in being able to articulate why racism is wrong. So, yeah, I think that, I think that's all, that's all well taken. Um, Would you agree, though, that it's an empirical question? What, whether, like, applying social pressure that doesn't sort of bypasses, say, the rational faculties, Mm -hmm. uh, can, can or can ever um, result in somebody actually believing something different rather than just say paying lip service to it. Sure. But I think we have a lot of empirical evidence um, that certain kinds of coercion get people to a place of where they assent to something, but don't have real conviction and understanding of it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm of two minds about that because I, I certainly want to believe that that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, but like we're a, we're a generationally extended species. Mm-hmm. And so even if I thought that that was true of people now, mm-hmm. I might think that what matters for the next generations, believing or not believing this kind of thing is in the ballpark depends a whole lot on the social context in which they grow up and whether there are reasonable people who are willing to say that kind of thing in public. Mm-hmm. And even if, right, everybody in the adult generation, say, just to take a really toy kind of case, is um, is just paying lip service to, say, the idea of LGBTQ rights, mm-hmm. the next generation... I'm not so sure that they'll just be paying lip service to LGBTQ rights. And that's to grant more than I think I have to grant if I'm sort of playing devil's advocate here, which is that I think that the speed at which, and I think not just outward behavior, but also genuine sentiment changed on that kind of issue, Mm -hmm. you know, in our lifetime, we're the same, Mm -hmm. roughly the same cohort. Right. Um, speaks to the idea that those sort of like, sure, there were rational arguments and, and, and such things, but I think there was also a lot of social pressure to change uh, the way that LGBTQ folks were, were treated and spoken about in our discourse. And it's, I'm at least I'll, I'll go on record for saying I'm uncertain that those sort of social pressure campaigns uh, did nothing to change hearts and only change sort of outward behavior. Yeah, um, so I got in 
to this a lot with my conversation with Carson. Um, it's not that I'm against social pressure. What I worry most about is social pressure that's unaccompanied by the rational justifications. Um, and I think, look, listen, you talked about in sort of modern history, we see um, a lot of evidence for the way social uh, pressure campaigns can create big changes in public opinion and public morals. That's fair enough. But I think it's also very fair to say we're also really dealing with the limitations of those approaches, and we see those in politics now. I mean, you bring up uh, LGBTQ rights, and I just think there's so much we could clarify. I mean, so much would... We could do better. We would have a better culture probably for gay people if if people were more willing to stand up and say that they think homosexuality is wrong because we have this really uncomfortable situation now. Uh, we're seeing it with the Pete Buttigieg uh, campaign now where we don't know what people's views about homosexuality actually are because it's become so taboo um, to say anything against um, homosexual uh, lives, you know, living a homosexual life um, that, you know, it just becomes mysterious. And, you know, a lot of, conservatives have been forced into speaking in this kind of coded language where um, I find myself really sort of cocking my head and having to listen very carefully to try to figure out what a given person is actually saying. And, you know, I wish somebody, they could just come forward and actually um, put it across. So, there is this way in which um, we're living in the world in which we've gotten this sort of mere assent for certain topics which have been declared by certain sort of moral and cognitive elites as settled um, in, in, the moral, in the moral sphere, importantly. Um, the fact of reasonable difference has not occurred to these people. Um, and I, it just, for one thing, we don't, one of the sort of drawbacks of those kinds of politics is we don't know what anyone believes. And people act thinking they know what people believe, and they end up getting surprised um, a lot of the time because they don't know that their peers are quietly disagreeing with them. Um, so that's a real problem. And the other thing is, you know, we're supposed to be trying to get into a place where we're building policy and actually creating a world that's based on these values. And you can't do that if you never got people to all the way to actual conviction is they will not get involved with your moral projects on, um, they may not interfere with you in pursuing the moral project yourself, but they won't join you in actually building the better world if they don't have some kind of justification, which is motivating to them. Yeah. 
So you've said you've said a lot of things though, which I'm I think I'm happy to report have taken us sort of outside the realm of the sort of Kantian insight mm-hmm. and into a space where we're now talking about well, how do you really describe the worlds possible worlds that might eventuate if we accept a stringent norm here, right? Mm-hmm. Like. Outward conformity is one thing we might get. We also might get some conversion, but we might get enclaves of radical people who speak a secret language and can then sort of mobilize to, you know, impose a different vision of the good on other people. And so now we're having a much, I think, a much more nuanced conversation than the Kantian starting point suggests that we need to have, which is that, you know, I think even if somebody's not a Kantian, they can agree by their own lights that a lot of the proposals that they're talking about have maybe slim prospects for realizing their, their goals in the end. And I think then, then you're talking in a language that kind of everybody can get on board with where it's like, okay, now we have to have this discussion about practical rationality and Mm -hmm. like how much uncertainty in in what world you're going to be realizing are you willing to bear out and and how much weight do you want to put on sort of the wisdom of of ages, which um, which suggests the importance of of not bypassing rational faculties? Um, but you know, I mean, I'm not a social scientist. Uh, I just think that like we need to do better. I think we who want to defend the idea that like one of the things that we should care about is promoting an atmosphere of freedom where people who have unpopular views, maybe views that are genuinely evil views Mm -hmm. are sort of not hiding them from the public Uh, is to sort of admit that there are reasons for thinking that you can do without it. It's just that when you really have the longer conversation, the reasons aren't so strong. Um, really, when you have that longer conversation, it looks like um, if you're going to be doing anything that looks like democracy, which, you know, is government, you know, by the consent of the governed or something like that, you have to care about what the governed think mm-hmm. um, and not just what you know, they're comfortable saying publicly. You know, you always have to go through them in a certain kind of way. Right. Uh, so that's a plug for the longer conversation. <laughs> well, I, um, one thing I would say is I don't feel I have to leave Kant behind to get into the more nuanced conversation. Always bring him around. I have a little finger puppet in my office. Oh, you! So the, he's always looking over my shoulder, making sure that I'm working. The unemployed philosophers guild one. The, yeah, 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 yeah. Those are like <laughs> standard issue. Was um, there in lots of philosophers' office? Um, but I mean, the the point that I'm even in the more nuanced, the more grounded conversation that's sort of responsive to our empirical realities and our political realities, the point I'm fundamentally making is still the Kantian point of what you're doing is your aims are incoherent here. 
because you're willing yourself the exception. You're not bringing about the world that you want to bring about. Um, and so I never have to move off that point, it seems to me. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess except insofar as somebody wants to respond, like, they might be incoherent in some sense, but, like, I really do believe that I can get and hold power for myself and folks who think like me long enough to make it worth the price. I, I really don't think anybody's interested in making that defense. You don't think that anybody like, so this is how I read Marcuse, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe Marcuse, but Marcuse doesn't have a lot of followers. I don't, I don't think he has a lot of overt followers, but I think he's got there. There's no sense in which I think that, Marcuse is alone in what he thinks. I think that there are plenty of people that think that you just get the elites, uh, the intellectual elites to converge on things. And then you, you have a technological problem, which is like, or, or a, a sort of problem of calculating expected utilities, but you know, anything you can do to get to the just society, the one where inequality is uh, sort of eradicated are on the table. And that includes all manner of incivility and rudeness in the public sphere, right? It just depends on what works. And that's where I think like they might be persuaded by, you know, empirical cases where you've got data where this doesn't work and historical examples where it looks like maybe people are getting close only to have the house crumble down. Uh, but, you know, you got to start making those kinds of, those kinds of arguments. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the one, the kind of argument I end up having then is about whether they practically can expect to um, seize and retain power indefinitely. Um, and we're talking about power in a sort of loose way. Mostly we're talking about sort of uh, the power of social prestige, the power of um, uh, media and opinion making and, um, of being the people whose views are not restricted in any way by the norms of censorship. Right. Right. So, I mean, I mean, I think we're giving a little credence implicitly to the idea that, you know, conservatives aren't paranoid about liberal Hollywood or, um, you know, liberal media, there's real power there that's being exerted um, to kind of shape the values of uh, the larger society. Um, And there's, uh, so I've mentioned to you before, I've been very influenced lately by um, Gary Saul Morrison's um, time and narrative. Um, and he has this idea of utopianism, uh, which is a political idea where um, people think that they can escape historical time. So we're now in history. Um, this gets into the sort of the end of history debate with um uh, which gets us back to Kant, but also Francis Fukuyama. Um, so the, the, what, what, what sense does it make to say that history could end? 
Um, it, it's we're not imagining the literal stoppage of time that you know one second would come after the next and uh, hour after hour and that the sun would rise and set, but that somehow this sort of constant churning of different ideas and different compromises, um, the sort of conflicts and things that we know as history could somehow come to an end and there would be some kind of stable permanent state, which is no longer constantly being negotiated. And there's a kind of, in certain kind of, uh, the sort of people who you're talking about who just want to seize power and hold it indefinitely are utopians in that kind of sense. Hmm. So they might be, need they be? I don't know. I mean, they might. So tell me if I haven't read the book, I'm going to check it out. It sounds very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, But tell me if this, uh, this kind of mindset involves that sort of utopian Mm -hmm. uh, bent. The arc of history is long. It bends toward justice. Um, how we got here to where we're, you know, mm-hmm. in a better position with respect to justice than we were in the antebellum era of the United mm-hmm. States uh, was struggle. It was buying for power. It was a civil war. It was, you know, uh, incivility and doing things that were against the mores of Jim Crow and these other dominant kinds of power hierarchies, even when people's, you know, civility meters were going off the charts saying, ah, this is not, this will not stand. Right. Mm-hmm. Is it going to be a struggle once we achieve the kinds of ends that we now have against sort of the dark forces? Yes, of course that you know, his, history never stops churning, as you've said. Mm-hmm. But, you know, does that tell us that we shouldn't, you know, take the best reading of history as our guide? No, like, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really the issue, right, is that there are there are different ways of reading history, right? The facts don't interpret themselves. And mm-hmm. there are people, and I don't think that they're crazy in the way that I think maybe you think Marcuse is crazy for thinking that like there's significant ways of leveraging power toward the good that have been effective and that we can, you know, sort of expect will be effective in the future, not in getting us to a utopian end state, but in getting us a little bit closer in a way that we can maintain if we're vigilant and being, being the right kinds of agents. Yeah. I, I guess I could see, a non-utopian kind of um, cynicism that you describe. I just don't think it's what we're contending with. I I don't think that's what's out there. Um, I think most people think that there's the kind of million, like Mill put it that consensus always needs maintaining. Right. So, any kind of uh, consensus about something can always break down. And uh, you mentioned um, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who um, was also uh, astute in the 20th century. People like Holmes and Brandeis uh, understood that 
as new technologies and new social contexts and social problems emerge, there are new ways for consensus to break down. So, you know, uh, radio and movies and the internet raised all kinds of new free speech concerns that by definition could not have existed before those technologies existed. So we can't just have a consensus about free speech and have that intact, you know, through the centuries because it's going to encounter new facts and have to be. So we have to, we're constantly in this process of sort of recreating a consensus about free speech because it's a different consensus every time um, for every generation. And I do think that a lot of the people who um, are more skeptical about free speech think that there's some point at which we will be able to stop this sort of constant effort to maintain consensus or to refresh our basic moral political convictions. It's just like everyone will organically be non-racist or um, non-sexist to take the two biggest ones. Um, They'll just, and I take it that that was part of the, contrast between us when we were talking about consensus earlier. Um, uh, I'm very, very skeptical of the idea that we can ever really be done uh, with those arguments. And um, the way people want to push past the arguments and just leverage power, I think, um, is it's a very limited kind of politics. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that gets us to the end. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, 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 I think, like in spirit, I, I agree. I'm trying to understand in my own work in these areas. What is what is it that's going on? And you began your comment by suggesting that um, you didn't think I had it. Uh, you didn't think that this was the sort of thing that was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that troubles me. I, you know, I'd be interested in in learning why you don't think that that's what's going on. I mean, is it the case that you think that um, people, when they hear sort of Mills? wisdom right the idea that if they hear mills wisdom but go ahead that were they to hear mills wisdom okay um to use this sort of subjunctive mood Mm -hmm. um and were they to hear confront the argument that like in the absence of debating people who have and hold dearly and with clear eyes of view that they're not in a very good position with respect to the truth that they take to be true, um, that they don't have the sort of justifications at hand. They don't know why the truth is true. So in some sense, if you're sort of gettier type about knowledge or whatever, mm-hmm. they don't know the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, my sense in talking with people is that they say like, yeah, that's probably true. Um, yeah, that's probably true, but understand that what I'm trying to do here 
uh, is compatible with like, you know, eventually in my own way. And when it's non-threatening, like talking about the reasons that there are, it's just that I don't want to let real defenders do it because they might be too convincing. Like the truth doesn't always win out in the public sphere. Sometimes the, the public sphere gets taken on these big, you know, trails of misery in which Mm -hmm. misinformation reigns and the, the truth is sitting there in the shadows, like cold and alone to put it dramatically. (laughs) Right. Yeah. No, but I, I, the, what I want to say is that the idea that we have some kind of short way around the truth um, is an illusion. Mm-hmm. The idea that we have some other option than to try to argue things based on truth and merit is what leads us down the rabbit hole to begin with. Um and what do you, I, let me ask, what do you, what do you, I, I have a feeling I know the answer, but what do you make of some of the sort of dual process stuff in, uh, in neuroscience where it looks like there are these two systems, one is slow and rational and the other is hot and intuitive. And if you're someone like John Haidt, you take this, uh, in an interesting direction where since the show is really run by the intuitive system, mm-hmm. uh, it's actually really best in terms of pushing things into your direction to address yourself to that, not toward the rational sort of discourse end of the animal. Yeah, Yeah. I guess you already, (laughs) I guess you already know the answer to that. No, Um, no, 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 no. I've never read thinking fast and slow. I'm not all that interested in neuroscience. Um, you you just touched upon what seems to me uh, a very broad and deep issue, which we don't have time to deal with adequately. But um, in our culture, the kind of social scientific way of looking at people, what Sellers would call the scientific image of man, is so predominant. The kind of um, view which views us as sort of causally determined by our surroundings and interactions and sort of um, shaped by mechanisms, um, the sort of understanding that social scientists and uh, social psychologists work with so occludes the kind of uh, more philosophical understanding of human beings as rational agents and as thinking, reasoning, deliberating people. Um, That kind of that aspect of humanity gets lost um, a lot of the time. And I think that's a really deep problem. Um, I just, I see people like uh, Haidt and um, Paul Bloom Mm -hmm. and uh, Sam Harris, God forbid. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, Malcolm Gladwell, 
these people have real kinds of um, social cachet and they're popular as intellectuals and they seem to have a real following or kind of organic following. A lot of young people read their books. People get very enthusiastic with it. They identify with it as a, like a, it becomes part of their identity that they're people who um, take these ideas seriously. And that that's part of who they see themselves as being eventually. Um, and, that troubles me that we don't, the, the, it doesn't seem to me like any philosopher has that kind of uh, cachet or even the more um, artistically minded kind of um, journalists, like the great George Packer, who really um, sets about to describe people in their dignity and in their moral agency and succeeds wonderfully as a writer. He's so popular, but no more, you know, he doesn't seem to have something that's sort of comparable. Um, and that just warps our understanding of the human condition in ways that really seem to me to get us all tied into knots. Yes. People are determined by, uh, incentives and by mechanisms and by uh, social situations, all those things are determining, but people are also reasoning, thinking, dignified agents. And we need to get that back into our political understanding because our republic's founded on that idea. So I think, uh, you know, I'm in great sympathy with a lot of what you say. One thing that's interesting in the particular context of censorship about this model to me and the reason that I ultimately brought it up is it is it might cut in either of two directions. Um, it might be taken to suggest that what we should be doing is trying to influence hearts and hearts over minds and by all sorts of sensorial means and applying all sorts of sanctions and imposing all sorts of costs on people who, who disagree with us, right? That's how you deal with the, the human elephant, so to speak. Um, the way that Haidt himself takes it is I think a little bit more, you know, in line with the sort of view that you have, which is that um, because we are these, beings, the rational part of which isn't always in charge. Mm -hmm. It's important that we do things in our discussions with one another and in our social relationships with one another that involve seeing one another as, per, as, per, as persons, as, as people that we can be friends with and family members with and so on. And so the example that he gives in the righteous mind is this case, uh, where you see polarization and the kind of incivility that we've been talking about, you know, the last hour or however long it's been. Um, hour. <laughs> probably so. Um, you see it sort of spike after there was a sort of uh, change in Washington where people were mm -hmm. no longer encouraged to have their families there, but were to be there when, uh, when the laws were being made. Um, and so they lost this sort of connection with the people across the aisle, which was a personal connection. And so one of the lessons that you might draw from this is that we 
it, it's sort of a, a parfait style climbing every, climb every mountain kind of way is that you can get there even if you think this sort of thing about human beings by recognizing the fact that like unless we see each other as people that we might live with. There was that poll, by the way, recently that suggested that an alarming number of people would prefer an unclean to a politically disagreeable roommate. Uh, you know, that, that, that like we have, we need to be put in positions where we see other people as like being like us rather than primarily in terms of their views. I'm fine with any such story so long as it ends with deliberative rationality, so long as it ends with agency. You you talked about putting us in a position. If it's a question of putting us in a position where, um, you know, we have this other part of our mind which can possibly, or I I would say, you know, another aspect of us, which is um, where causally determined, we have these sort of rapid processes and maybe to sort of get into a place where um, we can get into the deeper, more deliberative stuff. Sure. Fine. And I mean, we all do that in our lives, right? Um, But um, I I just make sure that that's where that we actually get to that point that we see that there's this deeper aspect to our nature that also needs kind of exercise and needs to be acknowledged. Yeah. So there was more on the outline, but I think we've, um, we've said a lot. Yeah. That was a, that was a workout. Yeah. <laughs> and I like some protein. Yeah. It was, this was a lot of fun. So social censorship, uh, when can you do it? It's complicated, I guess. Yes. Is that the is that the output of a, an hour and a half or whatever of deliberation? Um, is that a satisfying place to end up? I'll be democratic and say I'll let the people decide. Uh, that sounds good to me. All right. JP Messina, anything you want to put out there? Just thanks, David, for having me on here and for... You know, everything you do to remind people that there's a dignified side of human beings. (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, I'm very happy to leave it there. All right. Thanks for being here, man. Thanks for having me. Take care.